Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Personally, I've always been a little skeptical of religion. I was raised Catholic. I did the whole Sunday school thing. I went to Mass on holidays. I received communion. But the faith never really stuck. I'm still not a conventional believer. But as I've gotten older, I've become more open to the best of what faith has to offer. It's such a big part of the human story. And that alone makes it worthy of our attention. The most interesting believers, to me, are the ones who seem authentically motivated by a sincere religious devotion. I mean the ones who really live their faith every day. This is a rare thing in my experience. And to do it sincerely in the modern world is especially difficult. But there are plenty of people who do live this way. And so it's worth asking, what is the value of living a religious life? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Zena Hitz. She's the author of a new book called A Philosopher Looks at Religious Life. And it's a fascinating exploration of religion from a distinctly philosophical perspective, which is what you'd expect from someone with her background. Hitz has a PhD in philosophy, and her previous book was about the value of liberal education. She currently teaches at St. John's College, a liberal arts school with a great books curriculum. And she's also a Catholic convert who came to the faith in her early 30s and spent three years living in a religious community for lay Catholics called the Madonna House. Hitz's unique path to religious life makes her approach to Christianity really interesting. And while she focuses on Christianity, her book is really a broader look at the practices and virtues that make up a genuine religious life, and also a study of why they might appeal to someone searching for meaning, higher purpose, or maybe above all, for truth. Zena Hitz, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is such an interesting book, and you are such an interesting person. I hardly know where to begin. <laughs> Let's start with your personal evolution. I mean, your last book, Lost in Thought, was kind of a love letter to liberal education, and now you've, you've written this book about the value of a religious life. That is a fascinating journey. Did it feel like a natural evolution to you? So the book about liberal arts, the Lost in Thought book, was something that cooked for a bit longer. It's more, I think, built into my life from its beginnings, you know, having had bookworm parents and having gone to a liberal arts college. 
you know, I came into the Catholic Church at the age of 32, and I did start discerning, thinking about trying to understand the religious life pretty shortly after that. But it's not my current professions, so to speak. So I am not currently a member of a religious community. I I was for a time, for uh, three years. I'm still a Roman Catholic believer, but I'm not a member of the kinds of communities I talk about in the book. Uh But I did my thinking about learning and learning for its own sake and learning as a part of the human good and learning as a part of happiness and learning as being for everyone, which is so central lust and thought. That piece of thinking really crystallized in my three years in the Madonna House community in a, in a religious institute. Hmm. It's more general and not just about my specific life, but about the lives of all of the people who've been drawn to these institutes and have lived in them. That was where the condensation and clarification of the thinking that produced the book came from. You mentioned that you grew up with bookworm parents. Did you grow up with religious parents? Was it a religious household? Oh, no. Okay, so that wasn't part of your upbringing. Totally non-religious household. Really non-religious environment. Interesting. I mean, I grew up in San Francisco in the 1970s. It was not a religious <laughs> place. And my parents were not in the religious part of it, any part of it that was religious. My personal history with religious communities is much younger than my connection with books. So what is the value for you in examining religion through the prism of philosophy. I mean, you're obviously sympathetic to religion, you're a religious person, but the book doesn't read like an exercise in apologetics to me. No, I mean, I I think apologetics are pointless, honestly, a lot of the times. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> because I think central to my faith, beginning with my conversion and continuing on into my time in religious life, It was really, I think, a philosophical question that haunted me. I mean, it was also a personal question. It was also a question about how to live. But it was this question about how renunciation, how giving things up could be a path to happiness. Mm -hmm. It just didn't make any sense to me when I started out. And it was a shock to me when it did start to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. That's, in a way, the question which drives this book. It's my life with that question and and where I've found it in other stories, other parts of the tradition, other writings, and so on. I mean, you say in the book that religion is not primarily a matter of the intellect, but a matter of the heart, right? Right. And you also say that it is not irrational. I know what you mean here, but I do think it's worth maybe just saying why you think religion is both rational and also not a matter of the intellect. Seems like an important point. Yeah, you're right. That's a great question. Let's put it this way. Um, what motivates us, what drives us in life is the heart. It's the will. It's what we want. But what we want is shaped by what we think is real. So you can't want things that you don't know about. One of the reasons why learning is important for happiness, just in a simple way, the more that you know, the more that your desires can be shaped according to what's real and what isn't. So in the Catholic tradition, which is the one that I I live in, the one that I know, the one that I'm working from in the book, reason is a preparation for faith. So it's not irrelevant to faith. One nice way of seeing this, I think, is in Augustine's Confessions, 
This is St. Augustine's autobiography's famous story of his conversion. Yeah. And he starts off by studying a ton of philosophy. There's false starts and there's he joins a agnostic cult that believes that the world is fundamentally composed of a battle between good and evil materials. Who among us hasn't done that? Uh, who among us hasn't done that? And he has to reason his self out of it. The philosophy takes him out of it. And he becomes intellectually convinced that there's a God, that God is good, that there's only one God, that God is not a material being. And his mind opens up to Christianity, but in his own account, he doesn't have faith yet. Faith has to come through a grace, which very dramatically in Augustine comes through a child speaking in a garden and him picking up a book at just the right moment and reading just the words that seem meant for him. And suddenly he has this transformation. So what he's undergone is not irrational. You can't reason your way into faith, but you can prepare yourself. Mm. And I think it, it makes sense, rationally speaking, that reason would have some limits, some limitations. Yeah. And uh, I think being careful about what those limitations are is important. And one other reason why I think philosophy is very useful for religion there's a lot of ways to think about the limits of reason, and there's good ways and bad ways. Well, you're talking about Augustine's conversion experience, a phrase you just used about yourself. It sounds very dramatic, as though you were you know, walking in the, the countryside one day and struck by lightning and met God. Right? I mean, was your conversion to Catholicism a kind of slow-motion evolution, or was there a moment where something crystallized for you and you just everything changed? It was slow motion for sure. Yeah. So much less dramatic than Augustine's. I began by having friends who were religious, having close friends who were religious, having my closest friends be religious, having a sense that if I was close to people, if I was attracted to people who were religious, if I was more comfortable around them, then that might mean something for my life. Yeah. Then there was a process of thinking about what religion, if I were going to have a religion, which one would I, which one would I go for? Um, and then finally making a choice to become a Catholic, which there was a moment where I made that choice. You know, I was I was at mass in a, the Catholic church in Auburn, Alabama, and people from all over the world were there and there were people there by themselves and it was silent and people were praying. And I thought, oh, this is what I wanted. This is what I was looking for. But I I don't think that was a moment where I suddenly received faith. It was a moment where I decided I was going to keep moving in that direction. I mean, you were very successful academic, and you were sort of checking the boxes and matriculating through that that system, as it were. And right. you talk about being alienated from what you were doing, from your, your life's work. I mean, what was so alienating about it? Did it start to just feel empty to you? Did it feel too removed from real life or, or what? You know, academic life has two parts, especially the type I did. There's research and there's teaching. The research felt too removed. I enjoyed it, but it felt too small a piece of life to be taking up as much time and energy as it was taking. Mm. And the teaching was unfortunately a part of this kind of large-scale public university factory-style degree production, yeah. in which some good teaching takes place almost always, but it's not the main thing that you're doing. So I was, you know, shepherding big groups of people through intro classes who needed it for a credit of one kind or another. That was not the kind of teaching that meant anything to me. And I, I think in general, I had lost 
I started to read as an escape as a child, like most of us do, most of us bookworms. It's an escape. It's a way to get away from the real world. And I think I also went to graduate school for that same reason. I wanted to get away from from real life. Suddenly, at the end of my time in graduate school, I felt drawn back into it and because I, I felt isolated. I felt like there was all this suffering in the world I wasn't connecting to. So it had a lot to do with that. It had a lot to do with the sense that my life needed to be connected to the suffering of the world mm. and needed to become some kind of a service in light of that suffering. That had a lot to do with it. You wrote something in a book that it really uh, jumped out to me and I jotted it down. <laughs> And I'll just quote you. You said, it was evident to me that the exercises of analytic philosophy were a wonderful training in clear thinking, but faced serious shortcomings as a means of discovering the truth. What truth or what truths can't be understood through that kind of reasoning? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, part of what I loved about being in a program in analytic philosophy for graduate school was the ambition of the thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you had people building universes, building systems of the universe, and they were quite elaborate. And, you know, you discover problems and you develop fixes for them. And it was very freewheeling. It was very dramatic. And people took their views lightly in a certain way because you're going to subject whatever your idea was, whatever your thought was to this relentless barrage of critical thinking. So in a way, the adventurousness of it, it became hard to really take seriously the views because there were so many brilliant people who had so many different ideas and it was always in this huge amount of flux. Yeah. I've said this on this show before, but I, I do think a real problem with the so-called new atheist movement was this insistence on reducing religion to an epistemological question as though the religious life and the scientific life are alternative roads to the same destination when they are very obviously not. While I do think religions have unleashed all kinds of unnecessary suffering in the world, I also believe that any attempt to understand religion or transcend it requires us to think seriously about what it actually means in the lives of the people guided by it. And if you are someone who thinks debunking the Bible as a book of bad science is going to do the trick, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. That helps me actually to think about what maybe the problem really is. Going back again to the heart and the mind, yeah. a lot of these theses, you know, atheism, that comes from the heart. It doesn't come from the mind. I, I'm sorry. I like. I don't. You know, there are arguments that God exists. There are arguments that God doesn't exist. But they are generally posterior to a prior commitment, and that commitment's in the heart. So people who long for God, there are people who I think count as atheists. They long for God, but they just don't believe it exists. That's a very special kind of a person. And I, I think that their experience is very important and very interesting, and that's the type of atheist I get along with best. <laughs> but there's also a kind of petty, a spirit of the petty takedown, mm -hmm. which tends to be people talking to people who are already inside the group, yeah. and it tends to be reasoning to pre-established conclusions. And it's not easy to really examine what your commitments are in this kind of inquiry. 
and really ask yourself seriously whether you're confirming a prior commitment or whether you genuinely are open to wherever the argument's going to take you. I think the latter is just not that common. I mean, you were saying earlier, you don't think you can fully reason your way into faith, but you can reason your way into atheism, right? You can. Um, the thing that reason is best at is taking stuff down. It's not the best at establishing things. And that might be a, a bit at the root of the problem that we're circling around. And that's why atheism seems like a more reasoned position, because you can see how certain arguments for the existence of God don't work. Yeah. And I've never been in arguments for the existence of God kind of a person. That's not really how I work. But if I ask myself, is this established by reason? And can this be refuted by reason? Those are really, really different questions. There's a lot that you can't establish, and there's a lot that you can refute, but they're not the same things. We've got to take a short break, but when we're back, I'll ask Zena how she made the decision to give away all of her possessions and join a religious community at age 38. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Lots of people, as, as you know, convert to all kinds of religions, including Catholicism. But you really did kind of change your whole life. I mean, you you quite literally gave away most of your possessions to join a religious community. Right. How difficult was that? You obviously have strong convictions, otherwise you wouldn't have done that. But I have to imagine taking a leap of faith of that magnitude wasn't easy. It was extremely difficult. It was easily the most difficult thing I've ever done, joining the community. Coming into the Roman Catholic Church, it was easy at the beginning, and it got harder the closer it came, and then it got harder and harder once it was already done in a certain way. But it wasn't as hard as joining the community, selling all my things and quitting my job and going up to this community. That was extremely difficult. So I went up to Madonna House for six months as a guest. And then I discerned I wanted to, to enter their formation program, which is about a year and a half. And at that point, I sold my car. I gave away my furniture. I put my books in storage. I could never, ever, ever <laughs> get rid of all of the books. I sold maybe about a third of them, but I couldn't, I couldn't do that. 
But otherwise, yeah, I gave everything up. I said goodbye to my friends. I wasn't sure when I was going to be able to see them again. Because if I joined the community permanently, my life was going to be very different from that point forward. So can you just say, for I'm sure most people will have no idea what the Madonna house is, mm-hmm. right? It's not quite a monastic community, or you, you didn't become a nun, but it is it a... Is, it's similar to a monastic community in that the members make promises of poverty, chastity, and obedience, where poverty means... You don't earn money of your own. Chastity means celibacy. And obedience means you you do what the person in charge asks you to do. You give up a certain amount of control over your whole life. Like a monastic community, and every monastic community is like this, I want to be clear, there are stages of discernment, of commitment. There's a trial period. There's a formation period. Then there are promises which are temporary or vows which are temporary. It's normally something like at least eight to 10 years before you would make a permanent commitment to a community of that kind. And you spent three years. I spent three years, right. Wow. Mm-hmm. You, you recall in the book, the, I guess the director of the place, or whatever, had told you if, if you didn't come here to die, you came here for the wrong reason. <laughs> yes. That's pretty heavy. That was my wonderful spiritual director. He, he liked the heavy hitting soundbite, Father Paul, the priest who looked after me. But you even say that it felt like dying. And, you know, certainly a version of you, right, the you you spent your whole life becoming mm-hmm. did kind of sort of die in order to give way to a new you or a new life. But did that break from your old life really feel that total? Did it really feel that complete? You know, I think, to be honest, of everything, it wasn't the stuff that I was giving up. It was the relationships and the profession. Yeah. That was the thing that was so excruciatingly difficult. What also makes it harder to do as an, I was an older person for this kind of thing. I mean, you, you would normally do something like this in your 20s, not in your 30s, not in your late 30s. I was 38. So I was a bit old for it, which made it harder, I think, also. I had established connections, relationships, career, etc. So um, why not just convert to Catholicism and go to Mass on Sundays and give up something for Lent and all that stuff? Why did you... Why did you feel it was necessary to go all in in this way, right? That to live the kind of Christian life you wanted to live required you to do it in this way. Because my life wasn't working as it was. I mean, I I had tried going to church on Sunday, you know, joining a faith sharing group. You know, Catholic Church has mass every day. Go to daily mass, volunteer, take some theology classes in addition to volunteering, in addition to your regular work. Uh, I tried all kinds of things. I just sort of felt like I was being divided into pieces. I didn't feel like my life made any sense. And I knew in the core of my soul that something was wrong that needed to be fixed. There was something basic about my approach to life that was off. I didn't know what it was. But, you know, there's a tradition in the church of when your life feels like that, you go off to the desert uh, and figure out what's really going on. You go on a retreat. You spend some time without your ordinary life and and see what happens. Uh, It's it's very hard. It is also, it wasn't something I made up in my own head. I mean, I was following a path that I had talked to people who are further along on it. Well, there is a consistency in your view of the religious life and this decision you made to give your life over in this way. And I think it starts with your idea about abandonment as a really crucial, maybe the crucial form of Christian freedom. And I'd love for you to tell me about that. What does 
abandonment mean for a Christian like you? Well, it's, I think, quite difficult and something I struggled with for many years before I started to really see and even to think about starting to live in this particular way. But here's one example. When I went up to Madonna House as a guest, suddenly your schedule totally changes. Your routine totally changes. You don't have to make decisions anymore. Hmm. So you've got your prayer hours, you've got your meal times, you've got your work times, and suddenly your life is very different and has a very different flavor to it. Now, that's not really abandonment, but it's a kind of image of it. Because real abandonment is abandonment as an adult, where you're not just letting someone else make all the decisions, but when you too are making the decisions and you're abandoned to your own decisions, not just to those of others. But it's, uh, I think it's the pinnacle of Christian faith. You think God permits everything that happens to happen. Uh, God is good. So in each moment, I'm going to look for what God's will is for me, what's good in it for me. I think I used to find it very confusing because I thought it sounded like I was supposed to be doing this thing that God wanted all the time. And how was I supposed to know what that was, given that what I think about all the time is usually what I want and what my friends want or what my students want or what my boss wants. (laughs) And I think I finally started to understand that God's will is expressed through all of those things. And navigating the results of it is a way of, in daily life, of encountering God's will, which is to say the goodness of God in every part of your life and in every moment of your life. That's that's the practice of abandonment. So it's this idea of finding a way in your life to receive whatever happens as some kind of divine providence, right? I mean, I, you talk about uniting your, your will with the will of God in that way. There's a kind of acceptance there. And there's something almost... Buddhist about that? It seems very similar practically to this Buddhist belief that suffering comes from an unwillingness to let go and accept the impermanence of things. Though I guess I'm sure you'd say that Christianity has a very different view of eternity, but there is some overlap there in just giving yourself over to the world as it appears and as it happens and letting go of expectations and letting go of judgment and that sort of thing. I think that's right, except that it's not just what happens to you that you surrender to. It's also what you do. And it's also what you experience. So it's actually not a way of of getting rid of suffering at all. It is a way of experiencing suffering. Yeah. What I think it might actually even be closer to than Buddhism, and there are many Buddhists, of course, who also practice this, but I think 12-step programs try to achieve something like this, where you You accept things as they are. You accept yourself and your thoughts and your feelings as they are. You accept your life circumstances as they are. And you accept what you are capable of doing and what you did, in fact, do as it is or as it was. Mm. It's not passivity. I think that's the hardest thing to understand about it. It's not passivity in the face of the world, but it is acceptance of all the things that are not in your control, which is a lot a lot of things. Actually, I don't want to glide past that distinction because it's not immediately clear to me. What is the difference between acceptance and passivity? Those seem like very similar things. So to say that you're accepting things, but not in a passive way, what does that mean? Right. I might just mean something simple, which is to say that among the things you have to accept are things that you do. And among the things you have to accept are the choices that you have to make. Mm. That's what makes it compatible with adult life, maturity, because maturity is about 
recognizing your choices, making your choices such as you have them. You don't always have the choices you want. You're not always happy with the choices that you made. So in a way, it is passive. I only want to bring out that it's compatible with things that feel to us like adult activity. I mean, you say that the, the, that the best examples of the kind of Christian abandonment we're talking about here, and now I'm quoting you, must be the examples of a Christian life that a secular non-believer will find most appalling. <laughs> These are the word appalling there. That's um, my analytic philosophy or uh, contrarianism coming out. What, what, what do you think makes such a life of renunciation of the sort you're talking about here? What do you think makes that appalling to a non-believer? Well, because it sounds great when I you put it when I put it just the way that I put it, but you put into the context really catastrophic forms of human evil, and you get something that looks very strange, not just to non-believers, but also to believers. So the examples I use in the book are the bombing of Nagasaki, the Holocaust. How are you supposed to see the will of a good and just God in something like that? And I'll be honest, I, I don't. It seems very evident to me that if there is a divine will, it has no interest in human well-being. I think what you're saying makes perfect sense in light of examples like that. The natural human response to something like the bombing of Nagasaki or the Holocaust is to say, there is no God, give me a break. Or if there's a God, he doesn't care about us yeah. because no God would permit these things. So a lot of theologians will talk about the difference between God's active will and his permissive will. Now, that doesn't do anything for me, because if God permitted it, it's just, I mean, so what? Like, why did he permit it? He could have stopped these things, right? For me, it has to do with a life of faith as being a personal communication between God and the believer. It is a personal communication. So faith cannot be transmitted by anyone or anything except God, which means that every faithful person has a particular personal relationship with a God. And the level at which something like Nagasaki or the Holocaust works as a goodwill is where God is looking an individual believer in the eye, not in the respect of humankind as a whole, because we would never, ever, ever be able to see or understand that. And there would be something wrong with us if we did. It's very strange, and it's it's not something which could be abstracted or boiled down or, yeah. you know, you can't make a principle out of it. Like, well, sometimes the murder of millions of innocent people is justified when you can't do that. It's where faith becomes something extremely personal. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm not a conventional believer, though I am open-minded with respect to what's possible, or op certainly open-minded uh, to the religious sensibility and, and the, the wisdom to be had there. But this is definitely, this is definitely a place where I just, I just can't get there. Mm -hmm. I guess I just wonder if you think there's a certain kind of spiritual truth that can't be grasped without the experience of suffering and, and self-denial. Well, that might be true. I don't think that you have to go as far as I'm going right now. With, yeah. I don't think you have to go all the way to Nagasaki to get to that. So there's a level at which what I call asceticism or renunciation is just a totally normal human thing. And making it weird because it's religious just doesn't make any sense. I mean, athletes are ascetical, artists are ascetical. Yeah. Anyone who works for anything, they sacrifice some things. They take on some suffering for the sake of something else. 
So a lot of things that people find repulsive about Christianity or a Christian renunciation are just a matter of not thinking through what the ends might be. So, I mean, take celibacy, for instance. I mean, celibacy makes a person extremely available to all kinds of people in a way that I'm not sure anything else would. A solitary life and a life with a certain amount of frustration in it is a life which is open to all kinds of possibilities and types of service that might not be there otherwise. I didn't want to shrink from going all the way. I didn't want to hide that from a reader and pretend that, you know, you go live in this nice community and you help poor people and isn't that beautiful and Christianity is great and we're not going to talk about the huge challenges that a 21st century believer faces. Yeah, but I mean, even the level of abandonment and renunciation that you practice, I think the vast majority of, and we'll just stick with Christians because that's what we're talking about here, aren't capable of that level of abandonment. And, and the proof of that is that most Christians don't live like that. Do you think that these Christians, I don't want to say are not truly religious, but, but do you think that they're missing something essential to religious life? And if it is essential, then they are in some sense not fully religious. Oh, I have no problem with saying that. I mean, I think that there's a lot of confusion in our culture between living a Christian life and living a respectable middle-class life. So no, I think the Christians who don't understand this are missing a big core of Christian spirituality. A lot of contemporary Christians, American Christians, they're preoccupied with moral questions, they're preoccupied with political questions. Those are not the deepest questions. The deepest questions are, who are you before God? And given that you are a sinner, so it's not as if somehow, if you follow all the rules, you're going to end up being like a special kind of being. That's not how it works. So it's this very radical humility in the face of God and dependence on the grace of God. I think that's crucial for Christian spirituality. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, so that there's just one more voice out there that says something like that. We're going to take one last quick break, but when we're back, Zena's vision of faith seems very different from the way many self-proclaimed Christians practice their faith. Why is that? You do say in the book that you're searching for a vision of Christian abandonment that, and now I'm quoting you in your words, fits the varieties of Christian holiness without watering down the radicalism of Christian life. And I certainly agree that the person of Christ, the message of Christ is radical. And I think I understand your project here, but I also think there's a way for someone like me to read that as you saying that you're looking for a vision of Christianity that accommodates people who don't or can't take Christianity seriously. And I realize that might sound uncharitable, but I really don't mean it that way. I have enormous respect for people who take their values seriously, who live them fully. And I think the gap between what many religious people say they believe and how they actually live says something. I'm not sure what exactly, but it, it must say something about what religion has become. I think part of what you were doing there is looking for a way to make the kind of Christianity that most people practice square with the true 
vision of Christianity as you understand it. And you're trying to sort of reconcile that gap. And I don't want to run away from that. Unless I misunderstood you, I, so I'm not trying to accommodate what I'd call middle-class Christianity. I'm not trying to accommodate it. I'm challenging it. I'm not challenging it head-on, face-on, you know, reform ye sinners. I'm challenging it by laying out what I think are some central Christian ideals and patterns of life and encouraging my Christian readers to think about whether they seem right to them. And if they seem right, then are they really living it or not? You don't always know from the outside what's going on. So for instance, when I was living in D.C., I knew a lawyer, a government lawyer, who um, spent all night, every Sunday night, on the night watch at one of Mother Teresa's nursing homes. So he was doing hospice care in the middle of the night, eight-hour shift, graveyard shift, before beginning his work week. That's someone living a radical life. Doesn't look like one. They're a lawyer in D.C. Like, couldn't be more middle class than that. A lot of these practices can be hidden from view. But no, I'm not, I have no interest in accommodating. I mean, Christianity is like a, like any serious belief system. It's something organic. It has roots. It has a stem. It has flowers. So the fact that many people aren't living their Christian faith, that doesn't mean they have no Christianity in them. It's not developed. It's not flourishing. It's not what it's supposed to be. It's not for me to judge individuals that way, but I can definitely say that I don't see a lot of it. I don't hear a lot of people talking the way that I'm talking about Christianity in the book. No, I think that's I think that's right. And I guess my my problem with a lot of this is that w- what I see is is Christianity being hollowed out in many cases by some of these compromises with the modern world and at least in this country, it often becomes a kind of cultural marker or a political prop. And I I think the vast majority of Christians aren't prepared to take Christ seriously, you know, sell all you have and give it to the poor and all that, right? So they they take their, their Jesus a la carte, which means they don't take their values from their faith, they make their faith conform to their values. And I think that actually corrupts the real radicalism of Christ and, and Christianity. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I have any disagreement with that. But you are, in a way, you're you're putting me under pressure to defend ordinary Christians in a way. No, that <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me be clear. That's not fair. I mean, I, I mean, I, they do like feed the hungry and volunteer in prisons. I mean, they do all kinds of stuff that people don't necessarily. There's a lot of work that very normal middle class Christian volunteers do. That's very beautiful. It's not always reported on. It's out there, but yeah, no. I guess what I'm what I'm asking you is where that line is. You know, you talk about how just because someone doesn't fully live these ideals doesn't mean they're not a Christian. And, and like, I just wonder at, at what point does that gap or does that hypocrisy between what people proclaim to believe and how they live become such that they're not really Christians anymore? Or it's become so broad as to be like literally just a cultural marker. Well, the the problem with that way of thinking is that there's also a simplicity to being an authentic Christian. So yeah. now I'm thinking about Dostoevsky, who in a way I think explains this particular attitude to Christianity more clearly than, than I do, right? So if you think about crime and punishment, where the two best Christians are a murderer and a prostitute, mm. I think the point is that people who do things that they know that are in conflict with their own deepest values— are more inclined to throw themselves on the mercy of God, that is, to practice abandonment. And 
We don't know from the outside. This is the reason why I think we're told not to judge and why I'm holding back a bit from judging. I can judge in a general hand-wavy way, but I can't judge. Don't hold back. Let it go. Let I it can't rip. judge individuals. No, no, no. <laughs> because the point is you don't know whether someone who looks like the most hypocritical, smarmy, fake Christian doesn't go home at the end of the day and say, good God, I am the most fake, smarmy Christian. Like, God, give me the grace tomorrow to be better. Yeah. That's that's the difficulty. So it's not about at what point do you become a fake Christian? Because at some point, the door is always open to a non-believer or a believer to become a real Christian yeah. for them to say, oh my gosh, what a mess I've made of my life. God help me. That's all that it takes. It's very simple in that way. That's not to say that I wouldn't be happier to see more authentic Christian witness out in the American church and elsewhere. I would love to see people really teaching and preaching core Christian spirituality instead of the kind of watered down stuff that you tend to hear about. And I think it would help everyone to become better and closer to God. But that's not a judgment of individuals. That's more a judgment of the cultural leaders of Christianity, the, the institutional leaders. There's not a robust sense of the urgency and the depth and the seriousness of the project. You know, the decline of, of religion in the West is like a very common, popular topic. Right. And the conventional explanation for that is that basically from the Enlightenment forward, that the, the march and the progress of science and materialism has sort of eroded the foundations of, of faith. And that's part of what's going on here. But you say something I think very provocative and interesting, which is, no, that's not what happened. What actually happened is it's our enormous wealth that has actually eroded and destroyed our faith. And yeah, I'd love to know what you mean there. So part of what I'm thinking now, just following on the, the last part of the conversation, is that wealth in general is a massive generator of illusion and illusions about oneself. You know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it is, it has been for about 20 years, a site of incredible self-deception. Everyone is, everyone is a progressive. Everyone votes Democrat. Everyone votes for the most progressive Democrats they can. Everyone does all the lip service in the world to progressive causes. And there's the most appalling, despicable, visible poverty and inequality of any place I've ever seen in this country. I mean, there's people living in vans, working people who live in cars, and it's worse every minute. All the contradictions of our society are almost brought to a boil in one place. Exactly. Yeah. So that's an example where there's the same kind of hypocrisy that you see elsewhere. Christians, I think, I, I'd like to hold them to a higher standard. So I hate to hear a Christian say something like, oh, well, you know, those poor people, they've got to pick themselves up and, you know, dust themselves off and set off for the new future. But I, I do think that wealth, comfort, convenience— they give us an illusion of self-sufficiency. And that is me speaking from my own heart. Like I, you know, I mean, you're talking to me in a very kind way as if I'm living some intensely authentic Christian life. I, you know, I actually live a pretty middle-class life and I'm pretty comfortable. Things are pretty convenient. You know, I order stuff online that I need. Yeah, well, I, look, I think you sell yourself a little bit short there. I mean, I, yeah. you may not be living a fully monkish <laughs> existence, but the extent to which you live your values is actually admirable. And I think Christianity um, would have a better brand if, if more Christians lived like that, <laughs> frankly. Well, I, I won't argue with that too hard. wouldn't take much for Christianity to have a better brand <laughs> than it has right now. 
This may be a strange question. Do you recognize a, a religious genius in the world today? I mean, someone who embodies or communicates the essence of God as you understand it in a way that suits this moment in this culture? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, the thing is, and I think this is another a different kind of reason why religion and religious institutions are struggling at the moment. The most touching, beautiful things I know about are totally obscure. Here's an example. I just last week visited a college in Kansas City. It's a Catholic college for non-traditional students, 70% first generation, 70% minority. And these the teachers and the administrators are just pouring everything they've got into these kids. Now, is that a famous college? No. Had I heard about it before they invited me? No. Has anyone heard about it who I've talked about since? No. Why not? Well, you know, it has to do with poor people. It's little. It's in the Midwest. That's a pretty large-scale thing, man. That's a whole college. But there's stuff that people do who no one's ever heard of that would break your heart if you knew about it. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing that, like, takes over the Twitter feed or uh, hits the front pages of the New York Times. There's something about the age that is that is almost hostile to these kinds of stories, which would be encouraging. I think that's right. And I think that prevents the religious geniuses who I think probably really are out there. It prevents those people from really manifesting themselves publicly. If you are doing a bunch of YouTube videos on Christian works of mercy that you've been doing, you know, that would be a horror. You would look like the biggest hypocrite in the world. You would look like you were... Um, what's it called? Like poverty porn? Yeah. It would look like it was poverty porn, right? So there's, it's partly our media environment, our media age. It's not cut out for this kind of thing. It has to happen person to person, face to face. And that's not a lot of what we're doing right now. So you didn't stay at the Madonna house. You were there for three years. Why did you decide to leave? Um, I was in temporary promises at the time I left. And I had been hoping for a way to integrate my my intellectual life, skills, interests into the community. And it finally really became clear that I wasn't going to be able to do that. Um, and at that point, I realized that the fit wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to be able to use all of my gifts and talents there in a way that I could somewhere else. So I had to make this choice to go back out into the hard, cold world uh, where I've been ever since. <laughs> so, and uh, I'm able to do this kind of work, this teaching and learning. On the other hand, it, is, it, it has been a loss, I can say that. I mean, I, I don't have that, that sense of belonging to a committed community with shared values. I learned a ton from people at Madonna House who I think were truly called to that community who did sacrifice some gifts and some talents to be there. But the life that sacrificed kind of shows through even in those communities. It's an important part of it. Um, I, I was not called, I don't think, to make that particular sacrifice. I think that, you know, to be honest, I think it has partly to do with this if I had to put a rational spin on it and not just a personal call from God's spin, I would say that the crisis in intellectual life right now, the crisis in the colleges and universities is so serious that it probably wasn't the right time for me to, to sacrifice it. I don't know whether I've 
changed the course of higher education in the U.S. I think I certainly haven't, but I have helped to organize some kind of educational counterculture. And that seems like really important work that I should be doing and that I couldn't have done if I had stayed in. So I I think I was being called to do this kind of work. And I think that others are are called to keep those communities alive, which are also, of course, beleaguered in many ways. I just have to say, I really enjoyed your book. And this is such a rich conversation. And I'm so glad that we were able to have it. And I cannot recommend the book enough to people who have any interest at all in the religious life and what it looks like and what undergirds it and and what the merits of it are. So thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you. And thanks for this terrific conversation and for your wonderful, honest questions. Thanks for doing the good work. Once again, the book is called A Philosopher Looks at Religious Life. Cena hits. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you too. It was a pleasure. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As I said at the top, Zena is a religious person. I am not. But I am genuinely interested in Zena's perspective. And I am genuinely interested in the meaning of faith for people who practice it in the way Zena does. Anyway, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, go ahead and sell all of your earthly possessions and make this the very last podcast episode you ever listen to. Or if you're not quite there, maybe just share it around online. You choose. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.